We're continuing through our Advent Conspiracy series. This is our second. So as we continue our series in Advent Conspiracy, we're looking at what is the point of this story, the incarnation in particular. And I forgive my voice. I've been a little bit under the weather. So I've been told I sound like a stoner. Uh, I have no idea what they mean. Uh, oh, the high schoolers. If you're in high school, uh, Michael is going to take you off. Vamanos. High school. Don't make him call you out by name. Because you know he will. And so we've been looking at what is the point of this incarnation. It's at the core of our Christian faith. It's foundational to our belief. And last week we talked about how God became man. But when John was describing it, he described Jesus as the life. And him was the life. And that life was the light of all men. And we saw his grace and truth. What is the purpose? Why did he have to become a man? It, it, it seems very strange. And in light of so much mythology and things where you have this, you know, Zeus and him having kids that are half God, half man, and you throw this story, a lot of people will think, oh, this is just more mythology. We, we spoke last week how Jesus wasn't half man, half God, that he had the full nature of a man, but the full nature of God. He was all God stamped in human flesh. And in him was this life that we now have or have access to because of him. But why did he have to become a man? And so open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. And if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hands and we'll get you one. Galatians chapter 4. And Paul is telling this Advent story. It might not be as picturesque as some of the gospel stories, but he's giving us a little disclosure on what this is. In chapter 4, starting at verse 1, he says, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were, slave, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and daughters. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We are all born into this human story. We are all born of a woman, and we are broken. And as Paul is talking about a, a child until they come to the age where the father would actually give them their inheritance, have no right to that inheritance any more than a slave would. And so we were in this world under this obligation of the law that we couldn't fulfill. 
And so the rights of a child didn't belong to us because we weren't able to inherit it. We weren't grown up enough. But in verse 4, he says that Jesus was born into this human story the same way that we were. He says that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, also born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, Jesus is born in the same scenario as we are, identifying with us. And there had to be an identification with us. And we're going to look at two ways that this incarnation shows up to redeem us. And and today specifically, we're going to talk about why did Jesus have to be a man the humanity of Christ, and what is the benefit to us because of the humanity of Christ. The first way redemption shows up is that he lived a human life. He lived as we do. He identifies with us. Between this place of holiness of God and this brokenness of humanity, Jesus comes right in the middle to bring together the broken humanity and the holy God. And he needed to be a man to do that. It is his human obedience that worshiped the Father perfectly that allows us to identify with him. You see, Jesus gave enough. Jesus obeyed enough. Jesus prayed enough. Everything that Jesus did was enough. He lived the life that was enough in God's eyes. And it's real important that we understand that we look to this man, Jesus, as an example to us. As he lived this life as a man, it was his human obedience to worship God perfectly that gives us the opportunity to identify with him and be accepted by God. It is his humanity that allows him to identify with us and impart to us what is necessary to make us whole. And it's real important that we understand that because so many times when we look at Jesus, we focus on the divinity and we think, wow, this was God. And and yes, he was God, but he acted as man. Turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. A passage of scripture that we're familiar with. This is the temptation of Christ when he is led out to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so here, the temptation comes and it's, Hey, since you're the Son of God, since you're unique, since you're special, there's no reason you need to be starving to death. You can turn this stone to bread. And Jesus' response isn't, well, I know I could do that, but I'm not going to. His response is, man shall not live 
by bread alone. In other words, he didn't respond to this temptation as the Son of God. He responded to this temptation as man. Because it's not the Son of God who is going to defeat you. It is a man wholly submitted to God, living in obedience as man was intended to live that is going to defeat you. A man who will surrender himself completely to God, that is enough to defeat you and to overcome this temptation. You see, it wasn't God that overcame the temptation. It was a man. It was Jesus And in the proper time, he came born of a woman, born under the law, just like us, under the standard that God had set for all of us, lived in obedience. And it's because of this man that he now can speak for all of us. And so many times we have this understanding, well, we need to to live like Jesus did. And and that's true. But have you ever found yourself in trying to live like Jesus lived? You find yourself falling way short of what Jesus does? No one? Just me? (laughs) And, And it becomes this very, it can become a very frustrating thing where it's like, you know, Jesus is on this treadmill and he's just booking it and he's just going fast. And, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, I need to live like Jesus. And then you jump on the treadmill and it's like, this is too fast for me. And your legs can't keep up. I remember going to the gym one time, you know, and I'm there on my elliptical machine. What's so funny? <laughs> and I'm on this machine, you know, and I'm just sitting there and I'm breaking a sweat, you know doing two miles an hour, whatever it was I was doing. And there was this lady on the treadmill over in front of me, and this lady was just running. I mean, full speed running. And you could hear her just... And you're just sitting there, wow, that's pretty intense. And she just kept going and going and going. Ten minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by, and she's not stopped. I just feel like leaving the building. It's like... Yeah, I, I don't do that. I, I, I'm not, and so many times we feel like I just can't run fast enough and we get on the machine and there we are and our legs are going out and we're holding on the bar and we're jumping off the side and Jesus is there on the side and he's like, oh, really? That's as fast as you can go? It's really, it's not very fast. And we feel so frustrated because we can't do what he does. But you see, the point of him becoming a man is it's not your human life that you trust in. It's not your ability to run fast enough. It's in Jesus' human life that we trust in. It's It's his ability to run fast enough. He's the one who takes care of that. But he doesn't just leave us there. What he does is he starts to change who we are in the inside. If you've ever done construction work or remodeling work, I don't recommend it. It's hard on a marriage. Uh, It's just a lot of work. And a lot of times we just want to cover coat everything, make it look nice. 
throw some paint on it. When we went to Mississippi, to Bay St. Louis, after Hurricane Katrina, there's a group of people who would go out to the houses, and the houses had been totally submerged, filled with mud, water, and so there's just mildew and rot. And what they'd have to do is they have to gut everything. Everything that's rotten has to be removed. Because you can go in there and say, you know, the wall's dry now. Let's just paint it. And you paint it, and that mold would just bleed through. It wouldn't take no time at all for all that gunk to come up. What has to happen is the inside has to change. If the wood is rotten, it has to be replaced. And you see, what Jesus is doing by his perfect life is he's allowed us to now identify with him and he begins to change the core of who we are. So now it's not just I have to run fast. It's I actually want to run faster. I actually want to be obedient. I actually care what God wants of me. But I trust in Jesus' human life that it is enough. So even in my broken condition, his perfect condition is good enough for God and his spirit is working in me to help change who I am. The second way that the incarnation, the humanity of Jesus, redeems us is that he died a physical and human death. If God does not become man, there is no cross, there is no forgiveness, and though he lived the life I couldn't live, he also had to die the death that I should have died. And it's because he lived the life that I couldn't live that his death was enough to cover for the death that I would normally need to die. His penalty, my penalty, fell on him. And he paid for me. And so this death is why we have life. How do we know that his death is enough? How, how, how can we be certain? I, I mean, I can't keep up on the treadmill. I, I can't fix me. I, I need something more. I, I need Jesus to, to fix me. But how do I know what he did was enough? You see, again, he worshiped enough. He prayed enough. He was obedient enough. He satisfied the requirements that God expects of a human. And we have confidence in Him, His work, as a man on our behalf. You see, what Jesus does is we, we're on this treadmill and we're trying to run and we're going for it all we can and we're stumbling and falling and we're about to endo and just eat it completely and Jesus walks up and He unplugs the treadmill and He says, It's done. You don't have to run anymore. I took care of it. You can get off now. Thank God. Thank God I don't have to try and be good enough. Thank God I don't have to pray enough. Thank God I don't have to 
read enough. Thank God it's not up to what I do. Thank God that he unplugged the machine and said, I took care of it. What I want from you now is your heart to trust in the work that I have done. Believe in me that what I have done for you is enough to take care of all the brokenness, all the inadequacies, all the shortcomings, all the failures that you have. I'll take care of those. It's enough. And that's why in Galatians verse 5, he goes on and he says, to redeem those under the law, that's us, that we might receive adoption to sonship. It's because of what he's done now that we are able to receive this adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. What did he do? God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And that word Abba is an endearing term in Jesus' time. It means dad. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. See, the son who was good enough has put his spirit now in our hearts. We are now brothers and we are joint heirs with him. Because he has done enough, he says, okay, you're a part of my family now. And what belongs to me belongs to you. And because I am good enough, guess what? You're now good enough too. And that's why Hebrews, it says, now we come with confidence before the throne of grace. How can we be confident? Because the man Jesus was good enough. He took care of it for me. Because he did what I couldn't do, but he did it right. He did it perfectly. He did it completely. Now we cry out to our Father too because He's given us His Spirit. And then I, I think, why did God choose to do this? Why would God choose to become a man and dwell with us? Because now He is forever has this form of human body. Yeah, He's got a glorified body now, but He forever has this human glorified body, why would he go through the lengths to do that? Seems like an awful lot of work. Was it because he just felt guilty? Oh, I've created them and now they're all messed up. i got to go do it. I feel obligated. Kind of like we do as parents do sometimes. You know, oh, you know, I should have helped my kid out more when they were young. So now i got to bail them out again. Or maybe because we've earned it. You know what? They're trying really hard. Maybe I'll go. I'll go help them because they've gotten. A, they've given a whole lot of effort. Actually, it was in the freedom of His love that God did this. And I want to bring a point here. 
to the forefront of our thoughts because the reason that we are created is not just to give God glory. It is one of the reasons. But we are the objects of his love. And it is freedom that allows love. You see, if God created us just to give him glory, free will was a bad idea. He could get a whole lot more glory just from all the creation that doesn't disobey. Give free will, and now we have the opportunity to not give him glory. We are to give him glory, but the way we give him glory is by loving him freely. And it's real important because there are a lot of people in the Christian circle today who, who focus on, well, you're just here to give God glory. You're just here to give God glory. But you aren't just here to give God glory. You are the object of his love. The reason the son came is because he loved, not because he wanted to get you to be able to give him glory. But when our lives surrender to him willfully, lovingly, glory is the result of that kind of love. But it was in the freedom of his ability to choose that God sent his son. It wasn't because you earned it. It wasn't because he felt guilty. It was because he wanted to. It was his choice. And I can't wait for next week. Because next week we're going to talk about why Jesus has to be God. And that one just thrills my heart. I had a stop and not go there today because I so wanted to. I wanted to just stay focused on why he is a man. But he became a man so that he could die for us and that was his choice. And love is the motivating factor of God in his relationship to you. And so that's what makes this Advent story so wonderful is because God chose to become a man so that he could be the perfect man that could resist temptation, could live the perfect life so that he could die the death that you and I needed to die because he lived the life you and I couldn't live. And it was something he chose to do. It was his choice in this. So what about the hardships that we go through? Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 14, 17. If we're now his children, why is it so hard sometimes? For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit... Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Jesus knew all about suffering. 
And we identify with him as well in his suffering. C.S. Lewis wrote and said, The Son of God suffered unto death, not that we might not suffer, but that our sufferings might be like his. In other words, now they have purpose. Now your suffering isn't just, oh, well, you're a slave. It's just how it happens. Now you are an heir of God. And the sufferings you go through are working eternally in your behalf just like they did with Jesus, who for the joy set before him could endure the cross. The joy wasn't the cross. The joy was what was going to happen because of the cross. Now our sufferings are connected to the Son of God. And so we are joint heirs with him. We are his brothers, his sisters. And our suffering has significance in the mind and heart of God. And it has purpose. And we recognize this, that God is at work in us. That the things that Jesus went through, he did for us. There's a couple of interesting passages that I want to close with. First one takes place in Matthew chapter 8. It says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This guy's saying, Jesus, I'll go with you wherever you go. And Jesus says, I don't have a place to go. I don't have a place that I call home. I am doing this work. I am on mission. I am setting out. I have a purpose and I don't have a place to stay. I'm too much involved with my work to be able to just set up shop, relax, and take a home. So you want to follow me? I don't know where I'm going. I'm like, not even as good as the foxes or hens. They have holes, they have dens. I don't have a place to lay my head. The work that I'm involved in is so intense that it keeps me from being able to rest. Have you ever been able to identify that? You got a a deadline, a pressure, and it seems like it's overwhelming you. You go to sleep and it's what's on your mind. You wake up and it's the first thing that hits you. And you're all throughout the day thinking of these things that you have to do, that you have to accomplish. It's consuming you. And that's the picture Jesus is painting here. It's like, I don't have a place to rest. Turn with me to John chapter 19. starting at verse 28. This is at the crucifixion. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Jesus said, I I don't have a place to lay my head. I don't have a place to rest. I, I don't have a place that I can just relax 
because I've got work that still needs to be done and the work isn't done yet and so I have to work and when he finally saw that it was complete when he finally saw that the work was done he said it was finished and it was then that Jesus bowed his head and it's the same term that's used in the previous passage he couldn't rest until it was done but now that it is done it is done for good it is finished. I'm unplugging the treadmill. You don't have to run. Stop striving to be good enough. You never will. I took care of that for you. It's finished. Now I can rest. And this is the rest that we've been called into. That we can be Resting in the fact that the work that it needs to be accomplished has been accomplished on our behalf by the man, Jesus. That the sacrifice that needed to be met was met by the man, Jesus, our brother. That it is finished. It is enough. He did it. And what he did was sufficient for you and is sufficient for me and this is where we rest this is what we hope in the work that the man Jesus did on our behalf you see it needed to be a man to identify with our humanity it needed to be a human who could be good enough it needed to be a man who could give himself, live the life we couldn't live, and die the death that we were supposed to die. He did it, and it is finished. Let's pray. Lord, your life gives us the ability to rest. You give us your peace. So in spite of our brokenness, in spite of the darkness that still resides in us, You have met the requirements for us. And instead of us having to be good enough, what you do is give us your spirit, the desire to be like you, to want to be better to want to please our Father. It is the relationship that you willfully and lovingly have extended to us that causes us to want to bring pleasure to you. It's because you first love us that we find ourselves in a place of wanting to love you. It's because you chose to live 
that life and die that death because you willingly did this for each of us that our hearts are prompted to surrender our hearts are prompted to worship and to join in with your perfect worship to be able to celebrate and say it is finished it's enough to have confidence in your presence to be able to call you our dad to be able to pour our hearts out to you and know that you hear us and that there is now nothing separating us from you as we receive the gift that you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. May this Advent season grab our hearts and overwhelm us with a love that didn't give up, that saw it through. We thank you, Lord. We bless your name. And we are so, so grateful for what you've done. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.